Allie, let's talk about Queen Camilla. Eva, you know, it's controversial to say Queen Camilla. I think a lot of people want her to stay queen consort. But she is a queen. She's queen because she married Charles, but she's been married before. Andrew Parker Bowles. Husband one. So this marriage was a doozy. Yeah. But I think everybody, you know, imagines Camilla came onto the scene when she was the other woman in the Charles-Diana love triangle. But in reality, she had this wild first marriage that warrants its own telling. Yep. Andrew Parker Bowles was the catch of the 1965 Deb season. (laughs) She bagged the guy that every girl wanted in London society. I know we're talking about like bloodhounds or uh, racing stock or something. That's basically what their lives are are like. He was known as a charismatic swordsman. I know what that means and I don't like it. No. Grab your smelling salts. We are going to be talking about the sex lives of a bunch of now elderly aristocrats. I may need to tap out at periodic intervals in the retelling of this story, but I'll press on for now. You're so brave. (laughs) A real hero. I'm Allie Merriam. And I'm Eva Walchover. And this is Windsors and Losers, the podcast that tells you a different and lesser known story about the British royal family in every episode. So, Allie, tell us what we're going to talk about today. Okay. We're going to touch on one, Camilla's childhood. It was this idyllic, really formative experience that gave her, you know, some backbone to encounter what Leia had. Very horsey. So much horse. Uh, second, we're going to talk about her Deb season when she debuts in London society and falls for Andrew Parker Bowles. Right in the middle of the swinging 60s. The counterpoint to that was... London society girls were still being paraded out like thoroughbred horses. Truly. And then third, we'll talk about her early married life with Andrew Parker Bowles. It wasn't perfect. Nope. I think there's a narrative now that Charles and Camilla had this faded romance that was destined to succeed despite all obstacles. But in reality, she picked somebody else at the beginning. Yeah. And was by all accounts totally in love with him when they got together. All right. So let's retrace how we got there. Let's start... By talking about Camilla's childhood. So, young Camilla. Camilla was born into a family that was very happy, very functional. And this stands out for me in the retelling of pretty much every royal story because very rarely do people like look back on their childhood and say it was idyllic, but she has said it was perfect. She got to ride her pony to school. She lived with her mom, Rosalind, dad, Bruce, sister, Annabelle, brother, Mark, in the countryside. They were horsey people. They were social people and they liked spending time together. And I think you've hit upon something which is very unique about her upbringing is that I think we tend to think of the British upper classes as being cold and remote and they send their kids off to boarding schools and They're raised by their nannies. And in her case, it just sounds like she left a very happy existence and married into now a very (laughs) famously dysfunctional family. In fact, perhaps the world's most famously dysfunctional Mm -hmm. family. Right. But they stayed close. She was close to both of her parents until they died. So it just kind of goes to show that her formative years were like built on a solid foundation. So I think when Camilla got to the royal family, and she said this herself, she had a leg to stand on emotionally because she was secure. Kind of like Kate. Kate, they always say. I think that's a good parallel. Yeah. One anecdote that I love that Camilla said in an interview is that she was really encouraged to learn the art of conversation and talking and being amusing at dinner parties was 
a real priority um, of her mother's. And she talks about how she and her sister and brother were sent down to dinner parties and told to just talk. And a quote that she gave in an interview several years ago was, her mother said, quote, talk, I don't care what you talk about, talk about your budgie or your pony, but keep the conversation going. And she says, and so I've never been able not to talk. It's in the psyche not to leave a silence. That's like one of the few qualifications one needs to be a royal and do interminable like press lines mm-hmm. and make other people feel comfortable in yeah. conversation too. To pick out some little detail to highlight that will make someone feel special, but maybe ultimately is kind of empty, but it's... Truly. On the family, there was some family money, which I think probably made things a little easier with their country lifestyle. Her dad did work. He was in like a wine importing situation, but on her mom's side, she was a descendant of big property developers and construction people. But the family fortune didn't go to the mother, Rosalind. It went to an uncle who prodigiously squandered most of it. So I think some of the fortune has kind of gone away, but it definitely That's provided... That's expected. That's almost a, a requirement. Truly. Some relation will squander the family fortune. Yes. <laughs> um, it definitely greased the wheels, though, to like, you know, pay the school fees and whatnot. But then some of the more senior relatives on Camilla's mother's side were still very well-to-do. Very and had connected. Like, yeah, great connections in London. Like at one point I read something that after Camilla left high school, her grandma was living in Claridge's Things a very, very fancy, expensive London hotel. <laughs> yes, they were doing fine. But going a little farther back up the family tree on Camilla's mom's side is Alice Keppel, who was, of course, a royal mistress 150 years ago. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the stories There's of a the precedent. Light. It's part of Camilla's lore exactly. is that she's part of a line of royal mistresses. Exactly. That it's in her People blood. love to tell that story. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we can't, we can't miss saying that but Mm -hmm. the the larger point here is just that she had like a pretty her family had ties to the royals even though she had this kind of unostentatious unpretentious upbringing in a kind of shabby chic rambling country house they were a very genteel family with ties to the royal family definitely so she's living out in the countryside and she goes to this school called Dumbrells. She rode her pony to school. They milked cows to get fresh milk. Camilla was like beloved by her teachers. Actually, going through most of this history, like everybody's always really yeah, liked she, her. Like, she's fun loving. You can't take your eyes off her. No. Things were good for her. So not so much an emphasis on academics, but prioritizing just an ability to exist in the social circle and rarefied country life that she came from. Her education was all about like preparing her for a life as a, like the matriarch of a Like a a hostess and a mother. Yes. But you don't think they did like reading, writing, arithmetic? I'm sure they did basics, but from everything I've read about Camilla's education, she was not, and same with Diana. They they weren't really encouraged to be intellectuals. Well, that's a grand shame. (laughs) Imagine what they could have done besides marrying Charles. But so after she goes to Dumbrell's, then it's time to go to London. Yep. Off to the big city. (laughs) From about age 10 through her teen years, she attends Queen's Gate in Kensington, South Kensington. It's a posh but small girls' school. And there's a quote from a teacher at Queen's Gate, the novelist Penelope Fitzgerald, who also taught French there, said, the school was a place where, quote, the girls were taught how to write checks, play bridge, and recognize a well-laid table. So everything you need for your future as a... Mistress or wife of 
somebody <laughs> yes. with a title. Yeah. And so she's running around town. Her brother Mark is in London too. They're known as the sexy shans. There's a lot of writing about how she was a guy's girl. Like all the guys were interested in talking to her and she might not have been the best looking, but she was always really charismatic. She had a husky voice. She they called her funny. Mila. They call them Mila. <laughs> so this is great. She has fun there. She doesn't really get into too much trouble, but she always has friends and things to do. She left school with one O level. But what does that mean? What's an O level? So basically you take exams in a number of courses that you've selected. Like let's say you want to do geography, French, mathematics, and that's what determines what university you go to or what you go on to do. What would be a normal amount? You know, up to like five, six, seven. Wow, that's hard. Yeah, we both read <laughs> Tina Brown's latest book, The Palace, Palace Papers, and there's a quote in there about her time at Queensgate, and it says, Camilla left school with one O-level, a good address book, and the ability to fence. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good, and mm-hmm. I can imagine her fencing. She's probably mm-hmm. a formidable opponent. So after Queensgate, she goes to Switzerland for finishing school because that's sort of the done thing for you know, upper-class mm-hmm. aristocratic Diana girls. Diana also went to a Swiss finishing school. Exactly. Then she went to study in Paris to perfect her French. She herself has said that she did the training of the time. Nowadays, girls wouldn't follow the same course. Yeah, by and any she, means. right. And she's even said, though, that she feels like she wouldn't be equipped for royal life had she not done all that. So, so she's a duality. A, yeah. A contradiction. Yeah. Camilla had every privilege that anyone of her class and generation would have like wanted. Mm -hmm. So because of that, when it came time to be launched onto the London scene as a debutante, she was ready. Next, Camilla, Deb season, meeting the man who would be her first husband, Andrew Parker Bowles. First, a little context on London in 1965. So As Eva hinted at earlier in the episode, there was this duality of London society at that time. On one hand, it was the 60s. They were swinging. This, ladies and gentlemen, is London. Swinging London, it's been called, though some people might find a different adjective. Social rebels have taken over in what seems more like an invasion than a revolution because they've got their own new language that is way out and weird, to say the least. Boundaries were being pushed and redefined, but there's this section of society that like refuses to be pushed into modernity. And this is where we find Camilla, where some country people and aristocrats are clinging on to presenting their daughters at debutante parties, but the whole system had recently changed. She's there for the last time, the debutante, the darling of society, waiting to be presented at Buckingham Palace. The Queen has decided that this will be the last year for presentation parties, so London took a good look at the 1958 Debs, the girls who might well have stepped straight from the pages of a fashion magazine. In 1958, the tradition of presenting a young Deb to court to the Queen was abolished. Prince Philip called it, quote, bloody daft. Princess Margaret was scathing of these young Debs. She said every tart in London was being presented. They had to do away with it. They have such a way with words. (laughs) Such a way. Underlying those comments just shows how snobby they are because basically what they're saying is that like girls that weren't from the right families were also being presented. But having said that, there were still balls and parties. 
So it was it was a complicated kind of clash of old world and new world. And Camilla, by all accounts, had a great time in London. She had lots of boyfriends. Yes. Um, but she was still having to go through the motions of being at this virginal young debutante. Yeah, they must have sort of done it like a bit cheekily or like with a wink because, you know, their moms are probably like, we're having the party. Okay, maybe their dads did too. I don't want to put it all in the mothers. But the kids were like, okay, whatever. And also, who's going to say no to a party where there's tons of champagne and you get to stay up until 4 a.m.? The girl who stays the course will attend five dances a week and go home with the milk from now until the season ends in August. For the rest of her waking time, she'll demurely trot the social round from the hairdressers to Ascot, Henley, Cambridge for May week and the Eton and Harrow match for strawberries and cream. Queen Charlotte's ball on May the 1st, when Deb's curtsy to a giant wedding cake instead of to the Queen, is now the highlight. So in this time, Camilla's in London. She doesn't really have to work. She did at one point have a job with the iconic English interior design from Colfax and Fowler, but she got fired for being late. She was like yelled at by one of the more senior people there and like summarily dismissed very quickly, but she wasn't working for money or for a passion. Anyone who follows the Royals like we do, well, this may remind you of Kate's job at the high street fashion brand Jigsaw that she worked in while she was dating Prince William and similarly didn't show up very often. Literally, Um, there was an interview from one of the people who owned Jigsaw who said, Kate needed a job, but she was very clear with us that because she was dating a high-profile person, she couldn't work traditional business hours. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Okay, well, it worked out well for everybody. The Camilla of her day. Anyway, back to Milla. So Camilla goes ahead with her debutante party, despite the 60s raging all around her. It's March 1965. She is but a wee child of 17. Across the ballroom is this strapping man, Andrew Parker Bowles, who's 25, but about Andrew Parker Bowles. He was like, if Camilla was the girl at Queensgate, I think he was the guy in London about this time. He was a well-connected scion of a rich family. And Tina Brown describes him as the, quote, most panted after dinner partner on the social circuit. Oh boy, that just conjures images of a lot of related aristocrats who were like, we like the same guy. And in fact, that is what happened because later he was dating Princess Anne and Camilla was dating Charles and it's all connected. All very, very connected. He was an officer in the Royal Horse Guards, a very prestigious branch of the household cavalry. And his family had a lot of royal connections. So he, maybe that's how he got invitations to all these teenage parties. Like the Parker Bowleses knew everybody. They were like friends with the Queen Mother. He was a page boy at Queen Elizabeth II's coronation. So he was like in the mix in upper aristocratic and royal circles. It wasn't like she was married to some slob before she met Charles. And I guess what we're trying to say is that writing from the Times suggests that he was very attractive. (laughs) Um, So these two hit it off and they start dating. But the thing about Andrew Parker Bowles, and I will always refer to him by all three names because I just want to, um, he didn't want to date just one woman. No. You couldn't pin him down. You can't pin if him down a butterfly. If you're the most panted after dinner companion, why would you? Yeah, every year there's like a fresh crop of 17 and 18-year-olds coming to London. Like, he could have ridden this thing out much longer than he did. I think he did. <laughs> <laughs> so they start dating. And basically at the beginning of their courtship, Camilla's like, I'm going to marry him. No matter what it takes, no matter how many other women he sees, I'm going to put up with it. Also, that might have been part of the training from her aristocratic schooling to just be like... Whatever. And you know, that's interesting because you could argue that she was the same way with Charles. 
You could argue She that. stuck with it with him, too. Well, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> but so he keeps playing the field and won't commit. But for all intents and purposes, their boyfriend-girlfriend, he gets to know her family. She gets to know his family. Her mom had some reservations about him, despite his pedigree, right? She thought maybe he was a little too hoity-toity and, like, mm, treated on some those royal connections. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then Andrew Parker Bowles' mother was a little tough with all of the partners that her children brought home. So they're more or less official boyfriend and girlfriend, but, you know, that doesn't prevent Andrew Parker Bowles from continuing to see other people, one of which was Princess Anne. Um, So between the multiple girlfriend havings and then, like, having to go away to do his military work, Camilla was, you know, left to her own devices occasionally. And most of the story goes that she didn't have, like, other boyfriends, except she did meet the Prince of Wales. Now, Spoiler this, alert. <laughs> <laughs> major foreshadowing. Now, this is interesting to me because if you Google how did Charles and Camilla meet, the internet will tell you that they met at a polo match. But if you read history books, history books tell you that they were actually introduced by a mutual friend, this woman, Lucia Santa Cruz, who Charles knew from Oxford. And maybe dated. Yeah. She was one of the girlfriends. Yeah. He had a lot. Charles, like Andrew Parker Bowles, definitely didn't yeah. um, let moss grow on a stone or whatever, like, pasteurization <laughs> of that is. But Lucia Santa Cruz ended up living in the same apartment building as Camilla, so they became friends. And one day, Charles was coming over to visit Lucia Santa Cruz, and she thought, huh, I know exactly the girl for Charles. And little did she know how right she was. How fateful. Yes. And there's a little bit of debate about what exactly they said to each other. There's a kind of mythological account, which is that Camilla referred back to Alice Keppel, her great-great-grandmother, and teasingly set that challenge up to Charles. Like, hey, how about it? How about it? It's written in our history. Yes. But another version I read is that Lucia was the one that kind of mentioned that. Yes. My own theory is that no one will ever know what was said at that meeting because if it was Lucia, Charles, and Camilla, who's going to spill the beans? I mean, it's like the whole basis of the crown, like like to imagine in these scenarios what the dialogue was. But I Chances mean, are it was actually a lot more boring and less amusing <laughs> than it is in yeah, fictionalized accounts. They were like, do you want to have some sherry? <laughs> and yeah. here we are. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless, they hit it off. And I think that Charles was enraptured by what had endeared Camilla to so many people before. She was fun-loving. She had big personality. She had warmth and just an ease about her that people in his life generally didn't. Right. And because of how she was raised, she treated him like he was just any other guy. I don't think she was deferential. I mean, probably appropriately to like Mm -hmm. call him sir. And I think she had that special alchemy that is true of so many royal girlfriends and mistresses, which is she had the ability to make him feel puffed up and important and also make him feel like she doesn't care or she's a little unimpressed, which is so intoxicating to people like Charles because he's very self-important and wants to be wants people to be deferential to him, but also is surrounded by insufferable sycophants. So her sense seeming casualness around him was also intoxicating so like she played both of those sides and that's like that's the art of the like royal mistress right to be that that's a really good point and so they started seeing each other i don't think that 
that was a problem for Andrew Parker Bowles because he wasn't really in a position to complain. And I think they really had a connection. But at the same time, I don't think Charles was exclusively dating her. He seemed to be smitten by her and treated their connection with a lot of value, but he wasn't ready to marry either. At this time, he was still young. He was in his 20s. And and he knew, too, that he wouldn't be able to marry her. She wasn't a virgin. His family was still plotting arrangements for him with foreign royals. And Camilla just wasn't, while she was very connected and upper class, she was not fancy enough for his family. That's really hard to wrap your mind around to think like she wasn't fancy enough. Mm-mm. Yeah. Back then, it was an absolute deal breaker that she had been dating and sleeping with other men. Mm -hmm. And he would have known at that time, like, no way, she's not an option for me. Truly. She's just a fun diversion until I find the young Diana. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So nobody was on the page to get married, but they had a connection. At one point, she spent a weekend with him right before he had to go out on a military excursion for a number of months as well, because at at that time, he was also like having a military career like Andrew Parker Bowles. So while Charles is away, that's when Camilla and Andrew Parker Bowles finally do decide to commit. Right. I I read something about how her father and his father conspired to announce an engagement before Andrew Parker Bowles had actually proposed to Camilla. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, they basically like had printed in the newspaper that they were engaged. And so it... it, Forced um, their hand. That forced their hand. Yeah. Charles hears of their engagement while he's at sea. And he is very sad. He writes a letter and says, don't do it. Um, So Charles is sad. But as we said, Camilla had set her sights on marrying Andrew Parker Bowles. And it's quite possible she knew that a marriage to Charles was not going to work anyway because mm-hmm. she knew her past. But she she really did have this affection for Andrew. So, And she was kind of playing them off of each other. It's interesting because it, all of the ideas that Andrew Parker Bowles was hard to pin down or like slow to commit, I never got the impression that he didn't love her. It's just his lifestyle was... Mm-hmm a little sexist. He really wanted to have his cake and eat it too. And he knew eventually he would marry because that's his duty as kind of a member of his class. But it was just that he wasn't ready yet. Yeah. And they're still close today. And Andrew Parker Bowles has filled in at official engagements for Camilla as queen or queen consort. So it's like, they've always had a connection. He's still close to Anne too. Have we mentioned that this is a little incestuous (laughs) group? Okay, so it's 1973. They have a big white wedding. He's a catch. She's a catch. The queen mother and princess Anne come to the the wedding. It's, it's like a big society event. It's a to do. So after they marry, they do what every like self respecting upper class aristocrat will do, which is get a huge old house in the country. So they buy this house called Bodyhide Manor, and I have to say it like that because the way you read the letters is not the way it's pronounced. So it's, it's true of many English words. Too many, frankly, but that's a conversation for another day. So it's this grand house in Wiltshire and, you know, they need to fill it with kids and dogs. And muddy Wellingtons and barber jackets. And long drapes. You can just smell the damp wool. You can see the inside of the house online from listing photos from when it got sold, like, in the transaction after they had sold it. And it looks just divine. It's like a country house 
fever dream. It's it's right. perfect. They really were muddy, horsey people who yeah. were in and out with their dogs in their muddy boots, and it was always raining, and they just had big house parties. They were just the classic upper-class English country family. Yeah, the house is wicked old. There's like beams on the ceiling, the whole nine. Mm-hmm. I would live there is what I'm trying to say. (laughs) She sets up shop there. They have their son, Tom. They have their daughter, Laura. And I think that the family, despite Andrew's continued philandering and the subsequent re-immersion of Charles onto the scene, like, it was a pretty functional family. Right. Friends have talked about that they were very tactile with each other. They loved each other's sense of humor. They were always jokey. They had a very comfortable, easy rapport with each other, despite the fact that underlying all this was his philandering and her unhappiness at that. Yes. Everybody's still close and they were close then. It's almost like they accepted each other for what they were, which is actually pretty shocking emotional maturity from anybody. But she stays in the country pretty much the whole time. But Andrew Parker Bowles' work takes him into London. So he's there during the week. So And they have a London flat. He has a flat that he shares with his sister's husband, who's this fellow named Nick, and it's basically their bachelor pad. And I read that they had a code for when the other was entertaining a lady guest. Mm. They would arrange their glass milk bottles. This was back in the day when milk was delivered to homes in glass bottles. They would arrange their milk bottles in such a way that they knew not to go inside. I see what you're getting at. So a couple years later, after Laura's born in 1978, her old friend Charles reappears. And Charles, you know, when you're the Prince of Wales, you can do whatever you want. So he starts coming around Bolyhide and he's just like hanging out. He'll hang out there during the week when Andrew's away. He's like chilling with Tom and Laura. He hangs out there on the weekends if he's hunting nearby and needs a place to crash. He's just around. And, and the really sick thing is, is that Andrew was kind of proud of this. Yeah. And in fact, wasn't Charles godfather to one of their kids? To Tom. To Tom. Yeah. yeah. The official record says that Camilla and Charles weren't like hooking up when, you know, it was in her childbirthing years. But, you know, whatever, revisionist history, like he was around. And it's such a throwback for the husband of the prince's mistress to have his social status elevated because his wife is with the Prince of Wales. And if anybody was going to be cool with that, it was well-connected, royal friend and friend mm-hmm. of the family, Andrew Parker Bowles. Exactly. So Andrew's keeping up his London antics for many months. And after Laura's born, yada, 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 things heat up again with Camilla and Charles. And that is where we'll leave our story for today. So, Eva, how do you feel after we've just recounted this early oral history of Camilla Parker Bowles' life? I feel like Camilla has lived a lot of lives. And when you see her now, there's a there's a twinkle in her eye, but she's, you know, a granny with a book club. A granny with a book club. <laughs> she's a granny with a book club who never says anything out of turn, never says anything controversial. She kind of fulfills her duty and her role as a royal wife, as the queen consort. But I read a quote about her, which I thought was so funny, which is that if good girls don't, Camilla did. And yeah. I, she seems like she's probably a lot of fun. Of the and whole lineup. Yeah. She's the one you'd want to like sit next to. Yeah. Dinner. I think we, you know, we all saw those photos of her in jeans during lockdown. And she's one of us. She's one of us. <laughs> she's, not, she's, not, <laughs> she's not one of us at all. <laughs> 
Um, okay, we have very important business to attend to here. Who is the Windsor in this tale and who is the loser? Mm. For you, Eva, who is the Windsor? It sounds to me like Andrew Parker Bowles made out okay. Mm-hmm. Like he, <laughs> at no point along the story has he really suffered for his passions. No. Um, he's still friends with his exes. He is now the former husband of the Queen of England, but mm-hmm. doesn't have to suffer all the like discomforts of actually being a member of that family. But yeah. he gets the he gets to shine by association. Uh, I think he's without a question the winner. What about Interesting. you? I would say Lucia Santa Cruz, the woman who allegedly introduced Camilla and Charles, because while she's now a footnote in the royal family history, known only to extreme royal enthusiasts, <laughs> royal miscellany enthusiasts like you and I, um, she really kind of like altered the course of history by introducing these two people. So well done, Lucia. Yeah. Who's the loser? I'm going to say all the other Debs from the 1965 debutante season because they didn't get Andrew Parker Bowles. Camilla won. That's true. And I feel like Camilla kept winning in her own way over time. You. Uh, the loser to me. It's hard for me not to say Charles because as with so many things in his life, he was like kind of paralyzed by his propensity to dither. Like if he'd been able to take a stand for his feelings, like we could have avoided an awful lot of trouble. But, you know, I think at the 70s, he wasn't ready to commit. But maybe if he and Camilla had successfully dated early on or like had just been more of a committed couple, it would have fizzled and not worked out the way many do. That's true. And maybe, yeah, maybe he needed to have this interlude in order for them to now be happy and functional as a couple. Who knows? Well, this has been fun. (laughs) Psychoanalysis of that relationship. (laughs) I love it. Okay, Eva, shall we do this again roundabout next week? You got it. See you then. Bye. Bye. Windsors and Losers is created and produced by us, Eva Walchover and Allie Merriam. Our episode was mixed by Kristen Muller. Give us your feedback at windsorslosers.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 